Hey there, Journey, and welcome to Caesarea Philippi, a first century city on the border of northern Israel that Jesus and his disciples would have gathered at before he turned to head towards a cross in Jerusalem. All summer long, we've been in a series um, that we're calling Old Time Religion, studying the Apostles' Creed, not only studying who God is and who Jesus is, but studying the mission of his church and our understanding of it. If you have your Bibles today, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Because in Matthew chapter 16, we find Jesus and his disciples at this place having a conversation that Pastor Kyle actually took us through on Youth Camp Sunday Jesus asking his disciples what the word on the street was about him. And then Jesus making a statement about his church that we will find in the Apostles' Creed that we'll read in just a minute. And that we've been reading every Sunday this year. In Matthew chapter 16, we find ourselves transported back in history to this spot where I'm standing today. And it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied in verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still other Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone at that time that he was the Messiah. In Caesarea Philippi, we come to a place where temples were built into the rock of the hill that surrounds me. Several different temples. One to Augustus, who was the Caesar in Rome at the time. One to Pan, who was one of the gods of nature and all of nature. Another temple that literally stood right behind me. You can see the doorway um, of it where I'm speaking. But Jesus said, it won't be any temples built into these rocks that change the world. It will be the statement and the belief that I am the Messiah, that I am the Savior that will change the world. That is the rock. That is the foundation that will allow people's hearts to be connected to God and that will allow the world to be changed and put on mission for God. As we study that today, uh, in this place, uh, it's just fascinating to think of Jesus making that statement. But the apostles forever solidified their belief in the church through the Apostles' Creed. So will you stand with me now as we get ready to read the Apostles' Creed together this morning, celebrating 2,000 years of church history through what they wrote down. And as you stand with me this evening inside your bulletin is the Apostles' Creed that you can reach out and read. It will also be on the screen. That day in Caesarea Philippi, the heat index was 115. I had puked five times on the bus right before I got off to film that video because I had food poisoning. So I'm not only grateful God's church is around 2,000 years later, but I'm glad it's air-conditioned and that we can be inside in a building. The apostles for 2,000 years have been built on the foundation of these truths. Will you read them together with me? The apostles said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. The apostles for more than 2,000 years 
have been saying they believe in the Catholic Church. If you have a pen in, in the Holy Catholic Church, if you have a pen, I want you to underline that phrase, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now remember, 2,000 years ago, the word Catholic was a Latin word that meant universal. It did not mean a Catholic Church versus a Methodist Church, a Catholic Church versus a Presbyterian Church. It just meant that God's church would be for all people, all races, all creeds, all cultures, for all of times, all languages, in all countries. They said that's the kind of church that Jesus is going to have. And 2,000 years later, today, nearly 2 billion people around the world of every race, every culture, nearly every language, almost every country in the world, certainly on every continent in the world, people gathered on August 13th, 2017, nearly 2 billion people, one out of every three people in the world, gathered in God's church. The apostles said, I believe in that church, and I believe it will change the world. In Matthew 16, we actually see Jesus reference the church for the very first time. And inside Matthew chapter 16, we see three things that happen when God's church is at its best. And here's what I want you to know this evening. Tonight, we are going to focus on God's church at its best. Not all of us have experienced God's church at its best. Some of us have experienced God's church at less than its best. And some of us, unfortunately, have experienced God's church at its worst. That doesn't mean that it's bad. That doesn't mean that it didn't start well. Maybe today God's going to heal some hurts in your heart. Maybe today God's going to heal some wounds in your past. Because we're going to look at God's church at its best. And we're going to see what Jesus put into motion 2,000 years ago should continue today at its best if we will all step into what Jesus has asked of us in his church. What does God's church look like at its best? Well, number one. I don't know if you saw it, but Jesus said in Matthew 16, it's going to be a place for Christians. God's church is going to be a place for Christians. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm not a Christian. Am I not welcome here? You are certainly welcome here. And as a matter of fact, we're going to see the purpose of God's church for you if you're not a Christian in just a minute. But make no mistake, the foundation of God's church is Christian people who believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Look at verses 16 through 18. Jesus asked Peter in verse 15, Peter, Who do you think I am? Who am I to you? And Peter said in verse 16, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, the rock that I am the savior of the world, on that rock, I am going to build my church. Now, if you have your Bible open, I want you to circle the word church. It's the first time that word is used in the Bible. It's the first time Jesus uses that word in the Bible. It is the first reference of church in the entire Bible. But Jesus didn't say church. Jesus would have used the word ecclesia. It was a Greek word that Jesus would have spoken and Matthew recorded in the Greek word. Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia. I will have my ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What's an ecclesia? It's a Greek word that means ones who are called out and ones who are called together. The church is people who are called out of one way of living to a different way of living. And they're called together so they don't have to do it on their own. So if you're a Christian, you have been called out from living for yourself to live for Jesus. And you've been called together with others who are living Jesus to pursue his mission. That's what an ecclesia is. A church is a group of people called to follow Jesus and to follow him together. This word ecclesia we actually find in ancient history. When we read ancient history, we find that ecclesias basically were used when there was a town hall meeting in Greece. 
When we look at just Greek writing in history, we find the term ecclesia when somebody was going through a town and they needed to have a town hall meeting. They would go door to door and they would call out of households anyone who were citizens of Greece and they would gather them together at the town hall to make decisions about the future of the town. They would say we're holding an ecclesia for people who are citizens of this country to together make decisions on behalf of this country. Jesus said the church would be ecclesia. They would be people who were called out of living for the world and called out to live as citizens of heaven. And they would not travel by themselves. They would travel together. They'd be called into assembly. Jesus did this in Capernaum, literally starting at houses, knocking on doors. He had an apostle named Peter whose wife lived in Capernaum. And we know that Jesus met in her house and did ministry in her house until the house wouldn't hold him anymore. As a matter of fact, so many people were trying to get in the house that they nearly, you've heard the phrase, raise the roof. They actually raised the roof. They tore the roof off the house so more people could get into it. Jesus said, this isn't going to work. So they moved down the street to the synagogue in Capernaum. And once the synagogue in Capernaum was too full, they moved up onto the hillside. They started at a house calling people out of one life into another. They called them together until there were too many to fit in a house, too many to fit in a synagogue. So they ended up on a hillside and they started the church. You know, our church started the exact same way. January 10th, 2011, five families from our community who felt like we had been called out and called together for the purpose of seeing a church like ours established in our community. And we started in my house until our house wouldn't hold us. And then we went to a community center until that community center wouldn't hold us. And we went to another one until that one wouldn't hold us. And we went to a school until that one wouldn't hold us. And then we built a church that's not even close to holding us. So we just have service after service after service. But it is a picture of the church. People who are called out of pursuing life on their own to follow Jesus and called to follow him together with others to be on mission for him in the world. That is the church. You say, man, that sounds like a great place. What an exciting thing to be a part of. And it is. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever seen the picture of a healthy church? Have you ever gone to a healthy church? Every now and then I meet people who were raised in church and they were raised in really healthy churches and they have a light in their eyes. They have a different heartbeat in their chest and they cannot wait to get engaged because they cannot live without what their healthy church did for them. But I don't meet very many people like that. I meet people who have been a little bruised by unhealthy churches. I meet people who have been hurt and disappointed and let down by unhealthy churches. And I I meet people all the time who say, man, if I met somebody who was a healthy Christian, if I could go to a healthy church, I I would do that. Have you ever seen the picture of a healthy church? Because in Acts chapter 2, it's given to us. In Matthew 16, 18, we see the word church for the very first time. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we see a glimpse of not the word, but the group. The ecclesia, we see what it looked like. And here's what we learn in Acts chapter 2. It's going to be on the screen in just a minute. This was written by an outsider, not an insider. This was written by a man named Luke who did not go to this church. But Luke is an outsider, looked at the church, and Luke said, let me tell you what I see when I see the church. So I want you to listen to this text through the lens of your neighbors who do not go to church. And here's what I want to ask you this evening. When you think of your friends and neighbors who don't go to church, when they think of church, do they think it looks like this? Here's what an outsider said the church looked like to him. They, who's they? The ecclesia, those who called out, were called together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the brothers were together. All the believers were together. 
and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Each day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Do you think if people in our community who don't go to church were asked what the church is, that they would say, here's what I think it is. Here's what I've seen it to be. Man, it's people who really love God. It's people who really love each other. It's people who are always hanging out together. It's people who pray together. It's people who are glad and very sincere in the way that they live their life. It's people who drop everything to serve one another so that nobody is in need. And it's a place where people cannot wait to get into. Is that what our community who doesn't go to church says about church? Is it what they see about church? Because that's the picture of a healthy church. Is this what your church looks like and your church experience looks like? You know, when we look at a healthy church, I've learned that a church is a place for Christians to help them get healthy. But I've also learned this. There's zero possibility of having a healthy church if people don't intentionally commit to becoming healthy Christians. Like there's no way that our organization will look like Acts 2.42 unless your life looks like Acts 2.42. There's no way our church looks like Acts 2, 42 through 47 unless our staff looks like Acts 2, 42 through 47. I've learned that if you want an unhealthy church, you have to have a church filled with people who don't do what is in Acts 2, 42 through 47. They're not actively a part of learning God's word. They don't actively get together in groups and fellowship. You say, what is fellowship? It means hang out. Fellowship is the Baptist word for hang out. Some of you still use the word fellowship. It's okay. We still love you. But that's what it means. It means like to just hang out. This church was a group of people who met in homes. I've met with people who have gone to churches for 20 years. And they've never been inside the house of someone else who has gone to the same church as them for 20 years. Not one person. They've never shared a meal together. They wouldn't refer to their church as people who were glad and sincere. The community wasn't trying to get into the church and daily having numbers added to it. The people weren't in awe of what God was accomplishing through the church. Why? Not because the church wasn't healthy, because the Christians weren't healthy. So let me ask you, are you healthy spiritually? Does your life look like Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47? You say, what are the spiritual vital signs that allow me to like check this? Like, do you go get an annual physical? I try to get an annual physical. And they check some things that I'm not exactly sure what they mean, but they check some things to tell me like whether I'm going to live another year or whether I ought to be worried. Like every time I go in there, they put the, like the blood pressure cuff on me, right? And they, they squeeze it till my arm goes numb and then they let it go and then they write some stuff down and that must be okay. Every year they check my height, I guess, to make sure that I'm not shrinking and they check my weight to make sure I'm not expanding. I assume that's why they do those two things. Every year they draw blood and every year I pass out. That's what I do. When you put a needle in my arm, I pass out. So I just tell the technician, now listen, Lay me down, because I'm going to end up down there anyway. Just start me on the floor, put the needle in my arm, and when you're done, wake me up. About every time I've had blood drawn since the sixth grade, I pass out. Had a bad experience at the dentist when I was in sixth grade. I don't want to tell you about it. Or I'll pass out on the stage just talking about it. Like, that's just who I am, but I go every year. Because I want them to tell me whether or not I'm okay. I want someone to look at my vital signs. What do your spiritual vital signs look like? So how can I know? Like, how, how can I know what spiritual health looks like? Acts 2, 42 through 47 says this is what spiritual health looks like in our church we've kind of put it together in a way to try to help people remember it easily we call it the four e's 
We look at Acts 2, 42 through 47 and say, what does a healthy church look like? Because I want to be a part of a church like that. Well, it's filled with people, number one, who experience worship on a weekly basis. Acts 2.42 says they would meet in the temple, and one of the teachers would get up. He would open the scriptures, and he would teach people about God. He would teach people about themselves. He would teach people about the world. Once a week, they would gather in the temple, and one of the apostles would get up, and he would teach them the scripture in a way that helped them understand who God was and apply that to their life. Number two, we see that these folks would live and engaging in Christian friendships through small groups. Acts 2.46, I've been to the Temple Mount in Israel. The Temple Mount will hold more than 10,000 people on it. So we know that large crowds could meet for the church service, but then they said they went to each other's houses. I've been in first century homes just down the hill from the Temple Mount. They hold about 10 or 15 people, not 10 or 15,000. So this large group who was in worship together, listening to a teacher and, and doing worship, they would then go to homes they would have food together. So what would they talk about? All kinds of stuff. They would fellowship. What's fellowship mean? Hang out. They would hang out. But they would also pray. And they would talk about their faith. They would talk about the teaching. They would see what was going on in their life. They would engage in Christian friendships through small groups. I cannot tell you how many people I know who are engaged in a church and don't have one Christian friend. That's not spiritual healthy. They have not opened their life up to Christian community. We see number three, that spiritual health at JCI is embracing serving people through God's church. In Acts 2, 44 through 45, it said this group of people, anytime someone had a need, someone would stand up and meet it. And they all kind of served one another. That included giving, but they would all serve one another. You know, tonight you're being served by the church. If you have a child who's under the age of 10 who's not bugging you right now so that you can listen to the message, it's because someone in our church is serving you back in our kids' ministry or in our nursery preschool area. If you're taking notes, if you're like me and you're a note taker and you learn best by writing things down, you were served this week by somebody who put these things together and then stuffed them in our bulletins. If you're right now on the app because you're a tech person, you've been served this week by the church who has put that together and loaded that to be there for you. If you're watching online right now, some believer has served you because the church serves each other. And then we say we look at the book of Acts in the New Testament and we see Christians who equip themselves with spiritual growth plans. They were concerned with the next stages of their spiritual growth. There were two kind of primary teachers in the early church, Paul and the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, if you're following God, you should be growing. Like if you're a Christian, it's great that you've been forgiven. It's great that you're going to heaven. But between forgiveness and forever, there's a lot of spiritual growth that needs to take place. Grow, keep growing. The Apostle Peter said it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, you need to add to your faith. So you've put your faith in Jesus. So you've put your trust in God. Great. Now add to your faith. And he lists these spiritual traits. He said, you should be growing in your faith. So we look at these things. We say, what does healthy Christianity look at? According to Acts 2, 42 through 47, if I want to go to a healthy church, I've got to be a healthy Christian. What does healthy Christianity look like? It looks like worshiping. It looks like being in groups. It looks like serving. It looks like growing. So the question is tonight... Are you healthy spiritually? Are you healthy spiritually? I mean, go go to that 4E's graphic again. I want you to put this stethoscope up to the schedule of your life. I want you to put it up to your spiritual heart and ask yourself, are you healthy spiritually? Because we find this in Acts 2, 42 through 47, but you know where else we find it? In people at our church. When we do our Get Connected gatherings and we teach through our 4E's for spiritual health, We do like a little activity where we ask people in the group. We want you to think back to a time in your life when you would rate your spiritual life a 10. I want you to do that right now. 
Think back to the very pinnacle of your spiritual life. When would you rate your spiritual life at its highest, where it thrived the most? And then I ask people, how many of these were present when that time was? And you know what almost every person has said for more than a year, hundreds of people in Get Connected gatherings? There were always three or four of these things present when they were thriving the most spiritually. We don't have to look at the Bible. Our people tell us. When I'm healthy spiritually, it's because those things are happening in my life. And when those things are happening in my life, I'm healthy spiritually. So are you healthy spiritually? Because, man, I read Acts 2, 42 through 47, and I think, wow, I want to be a part of a church like that. But the only way we are healthy spiritually is if you are healthy spiritually. So how's your spiritual health look? There are four chambers in your heart. Imagine if only one of them was beating right now you would feel a lot different physically than you do. There are four spiritual chambers in your heart. If all you do is come to church on Sunday, that's going to have a spiritual heartbeat, but it's going to be a very faint spiritual heartbeat. And it's not going to push spiritual things all the way through your life at the speed they should be going. So the only way we are healthy is if you are healthy. So the church is a place for Christians. It helps them get healthy. It helps them stay healthy. But the church is also, according to Jesus, a picture for non-Christians. So the church is a place for Christians, but the church is a picture for non-Christians. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this part of the message is for you. This part of Jesus' statement is for you. In Matthew 16, 18, after Jesus heard from Peter that the church would be built on the the fact that Jesus was the Savior, Jesus said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades, what was Hades? It was another ancient word for hell. The gates of hell will not overcome that statement. What if I told you that the gates of hell was a very real place that you could be at in 24 hours? And I'm not talking about like the spiritual eternal gates of hell. What if, what if we left church right now and I told you that within 24 hours we could get on an airplane, we could fly to Newark, New Jersey, then we could fly to Tel Aviv, we could rent a car, it hurts rent a car, and we could drive to Caesarea Philippi and I could take you to the gates of hell. Would you want to go there? Does that even make you curious? Say, Christian, what are you talking about? So you saw my video from Caesarea Philippi. This is kind of the temple area of ancient Caesarea Philippi. You can see down in the left-hand corner the steps that would have went up to the temple to Caesar Augustus. You see another temple doorway there that I was standing in front of as I taught. Some of those pillars there are first-century ruins where Jesus would have been. And then you see this massive kind of cave in the middle. If we zoom in on that cave in the middle, what we see is the cave that was in the back of the temple that was dedicated to Pan, the god of creation. And what we learned as we went to Israel this time is that people from all over the Middle East would come to go to this temple to Pan because inside this cave at the back of the temple of Pan was the wellspring of the Jordan River. Mount Hermon would receive snow. It still receives snow in Israel. And that snow, instead of running off the side of the mountain, would go into the mountain. And actually, it came out in a spring here. And the Jordan River started inside that cave. And then it flowed down into the Jordan River, created the Sea of Galilee, out into the Dead Sea, and then it was done. But it all started in there. And 2,000 years ago, that was a whirling pool of water. And people would come from all over the world with their sacrifice. And they would go in the Temple of Pan, and they would offer their sacrifice into this whirling pool. And then they would walk down to the bottom of the hill, and they would see if their sacrifice flowed down the river that rolled out of town. And if they saw their sacrifice pass through the river, they would know that their sacrifice was acceptable to God that they were acceptable to God and they were on good terms with God. But if they walked down and they never saw their sacrifice flow out, legend had it that the gates of hell were located inside the temple of Pan 
And if that sacrifice never came out, it was because it got caught behind the gates of hell and the gods had rejected you. So when Jesus said, I'm going to do something that not even the gates of hell can stop, he was saying, I'm going to do something that makes the lives of anyone who wants to connect to God acceptable if they connect through me. Say, how does that tell us that the church is a picture for non-Christians? Because it tells us as we look at what was happening in Caesarea Philippi 2,000 years ago, it shows us that Jesus was aware that everybody wants to know if God loves them and accepts them. As he watched people offer their sacrifice and then race down the hill to see if it was accepted by the gods, Jesus saw a group of people who didn't know God, but who was desiring to be known by God. And he said, this group of people, the church for them will be someplace where they never have to worry about the gates of hell. The church for these people will be a place where they can know that they're loved and accepted by God because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 reminded the church at Corinth that every time you gather as a group, like we are tonight, Paul said every Christian, because the church is a place for Christians, but Paul said every time you gather, every Christian needs to remember that there are non-Christians who are with you in your life, in your faith, in your worship. And the way you're experiencing Jesus is a picture to non-Christians of who Jesus is. You say, where is that? 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25. Paul, talking about a church service, said if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying. What's prophesying? Prophesying is declaring truths about God. It's singing in worship. It's reading scripture. Saying amen when you hear a good point. He said if an unbeliever or inquirer comes in and he hears people talking about God, they're going to be convicted of their sin. They're going to be brought under judgment. The secrets of their heart are going to be laid bare. And they're going to fall down and worship God, exclaiming God is really among you. Jesus said, I'm giving the world the church so that when they peek inside the windows, they can see God. The church is going to be a picture for non-Christians. And Paul said, I want you to know that every time you meet, inquirers will be present. What's an inquirer? Somebody who's spiritually seeking. Maybe that's you. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you've got some questions. You're seeking. You're inquiring. Paul said, every time you meet, there will be people there who are looking for answers. If you're here today and you're inquiring, I hope you know this is a place where you can find some answers. Paul said, there will be unbelievers in your midst. Why will they be there if they don't believe at all? Maybe their moms wouldn't buy them lunch unless they went to church 2,000 years ago. I don't know. Maybe your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend drug you here. I'm not sure why unbelievers are here, but I know you're always welcome. Because Paul said, when they look through the window of the church and they see how you love God, their hearts are going to be drawn to what's happening there. So the church becomes a picture for the non-believer. And you know our mission as a church. We exist to see people who are far from God, inquirers, non-believers. We exist to see those people become Christians. And in the last six years, we've had more than 1,500 people make spiritual decisions who said, I'm not where I need to be spiritually. I'm trying to figure out how to get back. Or I didn't even know I was lost, but now that I see who God is, I want God in my life too. We actually have more coming than we can hold as a church, which is why we started with one service, and then we went to two, and now we went to three, and now we have four, and we're trying to figure out what to do next. And as Christians, we have to be responsive, and we have to be aware of that. Like we got to do something about it, which is why I'm so grateful for those of you who are here. There are a lot of you that the only reason you're in church tonight instead of this morning is because you are aware that our church does not have enough room for the people who come in the morning. 
And you said, I'll come at night to leave room for people who come. Because you know, the people who come for the very first time, do you know they always get into the auditorium late? It's not because they're late for church. Church people are late for church. Guests are normally on time for church. But here's what happened with guests. The guests who come to our church, nine out of ten, they have young kids. And by the time they get inside and drop their kids off at the nursery, preschool, or kids area and make sure that we don't have a bunch of serial killers working back there and like their kids are going to be okay, they take a few minutes so they stop crying. By the time they get to the doors of the church, it's the second song. It's pitch black in here. No one can see. And at 9.30 and 11 a.m., there's hardly ever any seats left. And we've had people who come in, and, and people come in families. Hardly anyone visits a church all by themselves. They usually visit with friends or family. They're looking for a row of four. And they come to the back door at 9.30 and 11. We've had this happen several times. And the ushers look around and say, we're sorry, there's no more seats. Can you, can you split up? Hey, we don't have any more seats. Can you sit in the overflow room? And we have families who 10 minutes before have dropped their kids off at the nursery for the very first time at Journey who go pick them up and go home and never come back. Some of them, I have to imagine, are inquirers and unbelievers. Paul said it's the role of a Christian to be aware that the church is a picture for non-believers, and one of the best things you can do is keep making room for them. Because if you can make room in a seat, they might make room in their heart for Jesus. So for those of you who are here tonight, because of that, thank you. Like you're missionaries. You are missionaries to Lee Summit by coming to this service so that there's room at 9.30 and 11. And if you're here tonight on accident, you normally come at 9.30, 11. Would you consider being a missionary to Lee Summit? And move into the 8 o'clock or the 5 o'clock. Because once school starts, it's the last Sunday of summer. Once school starts, we're going to be maxed out, turning people away again. So I'm going to ask you to be a, be a missionary. And give up your seat at those two hours. You can go to work tomorrow and tell your friend, I, I'm, I'm going on a mission trip. You say, really, where? To the 8 a.m. service. They won't even get that, but you'll know how important it is. I'm a missionary. To where? The 5 p.m. service. Say, Christian, why don't we just build a bigger building? Because then I need your money, not your seat. And when you consider it that way, it's like, okay, I'll just keep coming to the 5 p.m. service. Appreciate it. Eventually, we're going to blow out that wall. Eventually, we're going to build more seats. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So we recognize non-Christians are coming because when a group of healthy Christians who are called out and called together realize what our purpose is and what our mission is, and we realize every time we gather there are inquirers and unbelievers, We say, all right, we want you to see the picture of God that we see. So here, have my seat. And Christian, keep preaching strong, man, and helping people know who Jesus is. See, the church, when it goes well, becomes, number three, a powerful mission. It's a place for Christians, sure. It's it's a picture for non-Christians, yeah. But man, when it goes right, it's a powerful mission. And I don't know if you realize the mission that you have committed to, or maybe you don't realize the mission you've been called to, but Christians have been both individually and collectively commissioned to the following. Like when you say yes to Jesus, Jesus stands you up and introduces you to the world and says, hey world, this is Christian, he's decided to follow me, here's how he's going to live his life. And we're told Christians are commissioned to three things, individually and as a church. Number one, to love God. Matthew 22, 37, Jesus says you got to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You say, who has to love God that way? Christians do. But if a church is nothing more than a group of Christians, that means churches do. Churches have to love God. It means that Christians and churches have to reach and grow people. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of the whole world, was not given to a seminary. It wasn't given to a pastor's conference. It was given to Christians. 
Go as you live your life and help people learn how to follow Jesus, which means if Christians are commissioned, the church is commissioned, and then we're commissioned to help those who are hurting. In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Jesus said, here's how you'll know who people who really have Jesus deep in their heart are. Anytime they see a need, they'll work to meet a need. It's what Christians do, which means it's what the church does. This week I saw a tweet from the Lee Summit Tribune. They said the Lee Summit Social Services had the lowest level in their food bank that they've had in 20 years. And as soon as I saw it, I called our executive pastor and I said, call them and figure out what they need. Because every time you give in the offering, we take 5% of that offering and we put it aside to give to our community. And I told Scott, call Lee Summit Social Services, buy them whatever food they need, give them whatever, go shopping, give them money, do whatever they need. Because our church exists to see and meet needs of hurting people. And what we just saw was a 911 that there are needs in this community and we can help meet them. Go do something about them. Scott told me today that we've been asked to provide kind of the cold dairy storage. They've they've got a lot of long-term food given to them, but they ask our church to help pay for some cold storage stuff. And we said, man, the more the merrier. Why? Because it's, it's what Christians do, which means it's what churches do. And then when I look at the mission of the church, after a bad experience, the last six years I've learned to love the church for the same reason that God loves the church. Because when it goes right, when it goes right, it changes the world by changing individuals. I mean, when it goes wrong, we've been there, right? I mean, human beings run the church. It goes wrong. But when it goes right, it changes the world by changing individuals. And if as a church we focused on what the church could be by focusing on what we need to be and only what we need to be, If enough people did that at the same time, I think our community would see our church like Luke saw the church in Acts. You see, I look at the church, and I used to look at the church and think, I don't know that I believe in the church anymore. And God said, Christian, I'm not asking you to believe in the church. I'm asking you to believe in me. I'm asking you just to be the first one in line. You cannot change every church or even any church, but here's what you can do. You can say Acts 2, 42 through 47. If that's healthy Christianity, I'm in. If no one else is in, I'm in. On October 23rd, 2009, I sat in the basement of a church in Seoul, South Korea, and God began to speak into my heart the vision for this church. In Acts 2, 42 through 47 church, I saw so clearly this church that I wanted desperately to be a part of, that I wanted to lead a church that would make God proud in a community, a church that outsiders would see as someplace that they wanted to be a part of. As I began to pray about how I could go about leading a church like that fear kind of gripped my heart that I want to be a part of a church like that but I don't know if I'm willing to sacrifice the things that are needed October 23rd 2009 that happens five days later I boarded a flight 13 hour flight from Incheon airport to Chicago Illinois and while I was on that flight a good friend of mine whose sons had been in my student ministry died very tragically at the age of 60 had a heart attack and died. He'd been a coach for the Kansas City Chiefs for more than 20 years. He was with the Cleveland Browns and some other organizations before that. His sons were in my youth ministry, Tyson and Austin. And in their time in my youth ministry, I'd gotten a chance to just see his life. And he was one of the most godly men that I knew. And every time we met, you know, I, I would be in awe that he got to be a part of this thing called the National Football League. And he would say, Christian, I can't wait to be done so I can spend time with my family. At 60, I'm out. I can't wait to be done so I can spend time with my family. And at 60, he got out, he retired. He'd been putting away money to buy a ranch in Colorado, moved to the mountains of Colorado and live with his kids and grandkids the rest of his life. And six months after he retired, 
while he was in Colorado getting ready to build his dream, he dropped out dead of a heart attack. A couple days later, I went to his funeral. Ten days after I'd been called to start and lead a church like I saw in Acts 2, 42 through 47. And his son got up and he preached his funeral. And as his son preached his funeral, he talked about his dad's faith. He talked about his dad very early in the morning, every day before he left for school. He talked about his dad sitting at the kitchen table reading his Bible. He talked about how sometimes he'd, he'd walk in the living room and all the lights would be off and he'd see his dad praying on his knees. He talked about how his dad served people in the church and how his dad continued to turn down promotions in the NFL with other teams because he wanted his family to have stability. He talked about how his dad would sacrifice money so he could spend more time with his kids. He talked about how his dad was always a part of a men's group and he was always leading some kind of youth ministry thing. How his dad lived to serve Jesus and love others. And something strange happened as I sat at that funeral listening to that young man talk about his dad as only God could do Somehow that funeral wasn't any longer about Coach Wallace and I wasn't listening to his son Darvin talk about him. But all of a sudden in my mind, I saw my funeral. And I saw my son standing up there talking about me. And I thought, you know what? If my son had to get up at my funeral and explain why he thought I love God, here's the only thing I think he'd be able to say because dad worked at a church. Like all of what he's seen about my faith has been because I work at a church. He wouldn't say that I've seen dad read his Bible early in the morning. He wouldn't say I go through the house at night and see dad on his knees. He wouldn't say dad sacrificed to help others. He wouldn't say dad loved our neighbors so much that he was always inviting them to church. He wouldn't talk about any mission trips that I'd ever gone on. And as I sat there listening to my future son speak at my funeral, I thought I am not the person that I want to be remembered as. I'm not the person that I want to be remembered as. And I felt like God said to me, Christian, you will not be remembered as the person you want to be until you become the person I've called you to be. You see, you want to be a part of a church that looks like this, but you're not willing to be a Christian that looks like this. So here's my deal. You go first. You become an Acts 2, 42 through 47 healthy Christian, and I will bring to you a bunch of people who want the same thing. And together, called out and called together. You can have a powerful mission, but you got to go first. Let me ask you what your spiritual legacy looks like. I've been at more than a hundred funerals. Many of them I've preached and often a family member will get up and talk about grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, brother, sister, son or daughter. I've never heard anyone get up and talk about their family member's faith this way. And my mom, dad, my grandma, grandpa, they love God so much. And here's how I know that they went to church. I've never heard anyone say that, yet that's where so many of us stop in our faith. We go to church. They talk about their spiritual life. They talk about their spiritual service. They talk about their spiritual friends. They talk about their spiritual sacrifices. They talk about their spiritual leadership. And they say, this was not a person who went to church. This was a person that pursued Jesus in their life. Is that how anybody will talk about you one day when they recap your spiritual legacy? Christian, you won't be remembered as the person you want to be until you become the person you're called to be. Would you consider joining me? If you're a Christian, you're called to be healthy spiritually. You say, what's that look like? Worship, groups, serving, growing. It's what it looks like. It says who? Acts 2.42. says who else? The people in our church who have grown. Would you consider this fall joining me in a pursuit of healthy Christianity? Say, Christian, to do that, I would have to change so many things in my life. It will be worth it. 
When God spoke to me that day, sitting there listening to this young man preach, I thought, I'm going to have to sell my house. I'm going to have to sell both my cars. I'm going to have to move. I'm going to have to pull my kids out of school in the middle of the school year. And on and on. I'm going to have to quit going on vacation. I'm going to have to quit eating at nice restaurants. I mean, on and on and on. It's like, Lord, God is asking me for my entire life in exchange for spiritual health and spiritual legacy. And sitting at my funeral, it wasn't mine, but it became mine in my head. I thought, all right, Lord, all right. And what I can promise you is that it's worth it. Would you consider pursuing spiritual health at all cost? Would you consider being a moving missionary? If you're just here tonight by accident, but you normally come at 9, 30, 11, would you pray about being inconvenient at your service time so that an entire family might sit together? And because we have room in their seats, they might find room in their heart for Jesus. Would you pray about that? I think it'd mean a lot to the mission of God. 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood in that town, Caesarea Philippi, a place filled with temples, a place where the world came to worship everything but him. And he said, no one even knows what's getting ready to happen, but I'm getting ready to turn the world upside down because I'm going to blow through the gates of hell and there won't ever be a sacrifice that will be stopped again because when people choose to surrender to me, when people choose to follow me, when people choose to accept my forgiveness and my leadership, they will be acceptable to God. And no one will be able to stop that. 2,000 years later, here we are. The same opportunity to join the same mission. Love God, love people. Help hurting people in our community. Pursue spiritual health. What's God saying to you tonight? We're going to start a new school year. Kids are going to mature educationally. Are you going to mature spiritually? What's God saying to you tonight? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? With every head bowed and every eye closed. But our hearts open. Let me ask you one more time. What is God saying to you? about your spiritual health through the lens of the spiritual vital signs that we see of the church in Acts chapter 2. What's God speaking to you about in the areas of worship, serving, growing, groups? Say, Christian, I just needed a short season off. Okay, that's become six months now. That's become a year. That's become a couple years. So I don't feel so spiritually healthy anymore. If you're not pursuing the things that bring spiritual health, you're probably not. So what's God saying to you? Maybe it's time to jump back into a pursuit of spiritual health. He said, have to change a lot of things, Christian. It'll be worth it. I promise you it'll be worth it. If you're here tonight by accident, you normally come at 9, 30 or 11. Would you consider this fall permanently sacrificing your ideal service time? so that a new family might experience Jesus together at our church? Do you consider coming at eight or five, being a missionary to Lee Summit by just giving space to a family? And all of us want to be a part of a church like the one we read about today. But we can only take care of us. So would you commit to become your best you so we might become our best us? Say, Christian, the church has really hurt me in the past. I'm sorry, and I get it. But that wasn't because of Jesus. That wasn't his design. And we can't let man's corruption of the church keep us from Jesus' perfection of the church. So let's just do what we can do and become the best us for God's church.